Okay, I've called this, accept one another. And let me just read for you again the first few verses of this section that start of Romans chapter 14. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. I'll read that again. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And then if you've got your finger, just flick over the page and look at 15 verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. That's the beginning and the end of the section we're going to look at over two weeks. And immediately you're like, okay then, tune in on this one, Steve. Okay, then all I will. Here you go. I love the realism of the Bible. Because here we're being told that if you are people who are trying to figure out what it looks like to live for Jesus and be part of a church family that belongs to Jesus, there are going to be hiccups. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be quarrels. There's going to be disputes. And there are going to be punch-ups. In fact, if you don't have a good punch-up in your church every now and again, there's probably problems. I'll tell you why. In Rome it was very clear why. There were people from every kind of background coming together under God. Which is what he intended. You know, this is a gospel for all people, for the whole world. Bring them together and show them that I've got the power to make them one. Rather than splitting off and trying to do their own little things and living in charge of their own little lives, I'm going to bring them together under me. One people gathered under God. Amazing. Now it's hard enough to sort of get on with people out there, out there in the world, in the, in the workplace. But at least at the end of the day you can go home. At least if you don't like somebody you can blank them and ignore them and that's what everybody expects. But when you're in the church it's even harder because you're highly invested in serving one God and yet there's people there who don't quite see it the way you do. And there's nowhere to hide. It's easy out there because you can just run a mile but you can't hide in the church. In fact, isn't it cheeky? What were you thinking of? Asking me to try and get on with people who have differences to me, who I wouldn't normally meet with. You're saying that I've got to go and and gather together with people who come from a different background, have been educated differently, got different types of families, different coloured skin, sometimes even different languages. I've got to get on with them? No chance. Silly idea, that. No, God, if if that's going to happen, you should expect bickering, criticism, backbiting, quarrelling over our differences. And can I tell you, that's why so many people have put off church. Because they see people like you and me squabbling. No, I don't want to believe, I don't want to believe in a God who brings people together and makes them squabble. But, says the Apostle Paul, this is the reality, but the difference is this. It will be different in the way we squabble. We will be different in the way we bicker. We will be different in the way we quarrel. Our problems, our differences will be dealt with differently to how it is out there. Out there, I call them for all kinds and blank them and leave them out. Or I go and have a straightener. But in the church, you deal with it in a different way. We deal with our real and sometimes painful differences differently because we deal with it not in anger or in hate or in trying to pull away from people, but we deal with it Please don't let this fly by you. We deal with it in love. Not I feel loving. To be honest, sometimes I don't feel loving to all of you. But love in the Bible isn't a feeling. 
It's a choice and it is an action. It's not a mushy feeling. It's that decision to say, whether I want to or not, I will do what is best for you, even if you don't deserve it, and even if I don't feel like it, even if it hurts. In short, the way we deal with our differences and struggles within church isn't like out there, because we deal with it in here like the Lord Jesus did. I live like Jesus. And remember, Jesus is the one who said to his enemies, he died for his enemies, didn't he? He paid the ultimate cost to do good for his enemies. And in case you forget who that is, that's you and me. That's what we were before we put our trust in Jesus. Perhaps for some of you here, I don't know where you're all at spiritually, it could be that at the moment you're still living as an enemy of God. And you haven't said, no, I want Jesus to be my king. He loves you enough to die for you, that you would be one of his people. And as we live that different way, as we deal with our differences differently, isn't God praised? We whisper in God. Sorry, wrong Linda. Wrong Linda. Linda, you take the seat. Other Linda. Apparently your presence has been requested at a higher level than sitting under God's word. Shocking. You just gained more. You just gained more children there, didn't you, Linda? You just gained more children there. So we will show off. Oh, it is that one. Sorry about that. Wrong, Linda. Linda, apparently, we need keys to your house. Would anybody else like to go while we're at it? That's fine. Lovely. Can you pull the door over? Don't worry, this is all on tape. Somebody close the door. Brilliant. Right. And let's get retuned back in. I know we tuned back in when I got alive this way. Right, we're back in. Good. So. Where was I up to? Somebody encouraged me. What was we saying? We have differences with one another, but what's different? We deal with it differently. So because of the fact we're joined to Jesus, we defy our human instinct to break up. Linda, get in and sit down! Well, if you wait a few minutes... Wait for Shuri. Is it Shuri? Tony. Tony, tell us to wait and somebody will come back with you afterwards and help you break in. Hopefully without busting stuff. So just hold on a minute. Tell us to come in and... Yeah. No problem. I think pastors have resigned for less than this. This is it, yeah, how do we deal with our differences? Right, hold on, not right. Okay, we're going to chew it. Right? You've got the idea. Let's have a look at the problem they have there. You can see the title up there. We're going to look for just five, maybe ten minutes at the challenge of the differences, and then we're going to see three quick answers. So if you don't get to point one until halfway through, don't panic, because the three things I'm bringing to you are quick. This is the problem, okay? Have a little look at Romans 14, read verses 1 through to 4. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. 
One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. That's why Caleb would get tongue-tied, it can be a little bit confusing there, can't it? But let's just write, okay. Believe it or not, what was happening in the church in Rome was that they were coming to blows, having a punch-up in their church, and at the heart of it was vegans. Well, actually, strictly speaking, they weren't vegan. They weren't people who had opted out of eating vegetables um, for the same reason as a vegan, but they were probably Jewish people who come from a Jewish background. And they were very, very wary of where their meat came from. It was just the way they'd been brought up. Since they were that high, you know, mum wouldn't take them for a Big Mac. They'd eat a bit of chicken or something like that. Or they were particularly on the watch out and on the lookout. Welcome in. Come on in. You're very welcome here. We'll break into your house later. They were used, they were used to having meat, but not meat that had gone been uh, at a butcher that wasn't kosher. You know how you go down to Tesco and get your kosher food? So here were these Jewish people from a Jewish background who'd gone to the church in Rome, which was mainly made up of people who weren't from a Jewish background and would eat anything off the meat counter and weren't bothered. In fact, some of the meat they'd got had actually been offered, as, uh, offered to idols as sacrifices, so they went through some sort of pagan ritual before the meat even got to the shop. And so if you're somebody from a Jewish background and you're seeing this meat, you're going, oh, no way. You call yourself a Christian? And you're not eating kosher meat? And of course, with that, they looked down on them. And then it came from the other side, that the Christians who were there chopping on their Big Mac and eating their bacon butty, having a great time, they were like, um, oh bless them, aren't they pathetic? They'll learn in a bit. We're so free. And of course, that's fine if you can sort of divide down the aisle. So you can imagine you've still got the all right up tight crew over this side who are like, we're better because we don't eat meat, don't you know? And then there's sort of like the sloppy dressers over this side who are sort of a little bit more chilled out. And they're sort of like, so stuck up, we're free. Don't they know that Jesus has died for us and we've got permission over these kind of issues? And of course, within that, we're going to find next week there is a right and wrong answer to it. But do you spot the problem? It's the way they're treating one another. You see that? And Paul calls the ones who are sort of from the more, the ones with the more sensitive conscience, shall we say, he calls them weak. Because in some sense, there is a measure in which they're weak in faith because they, they put a few unnecessary rules, which they thought are right rules, but actually, in the light of Jesus' aren't. They, they put a few unnecessary rules to sort of make themselves feel, feel secure to make them feel a little bit more acceptable to God. They don't get actually that the reason we're acceptable to God is not because we keep any rules at all, but because of what Jesus has done, that he has been the pure, spotless, blameless one on our behalf. And to be honest with you, a bit of meat ain't going to make one bit of difference one way or the other. Your problem is so serious, you need a saviour, not a good diet. That's what you need. But Paul calls them those who are weak in faith because they've got a sensitive conscience about their freedom. They struggle sometimes to shake off the old background instincts of areas of life that they haven't quite let the gospel into. And sometimes they put these unnecessary rules just to make themselves feel a bit more secure. So what are we saying here? We're saying that actually our ideas about what it looks like to live the Christian faith don't start when we first come to trust Jesus. We've got ideas in the background, haven't we? 
And then when we come and belong to a church, we bring those ideas with us, and we haven't quite yet got to the point where we've figured out, well, what does it really look like for Jesus, and what is just my background that I'm importing into Christian faith? And the danger then becomes is we start judging other people by our standards that aren't actually the gospel. Nod if you get what I'm talking about. We have a few nods and a few cricknecks. Okay. But look at where it causes a problem. Look, verse 3 again. Uh, There we are. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Look at the kind of person who says, I'm free in Jesus. I can, you know, on these disputes, he's not talking about I'm free to go and, I, I don't know, sleep with my girlfriend or... Um, ignore the business of, having, uh, of being part of a church and meeting together. These are disputable matters, matters of our background. There are things that the Christian faith is dead rock solid on. Jesus is Lord. We only get to God through him. He calls us to live a life of separation with him at the centre, living up for him. But there's plenty of things in the Bible that are absolutely crystal clear, but these are what some people call disputable matters or secondary issues. We'll come to some suggestions over what they might be in a minute. But if you're somebody who says, you know, in Jesus I'm free to do that, the temptation is that you start to look down on. Do you see that? Look down on people who've got a sensitive conscience. You look down on them as people who are not, you know, liberated and free. You, you laugh and you're like, um, oh, they still wear a suit when they go to church. Oh, that's so old-fashioned, as if God cares what we wear when we go to church. Have you noticed you sort of laugh at them? in some way. In fact, that word look down on literally means despise or to count as nothing. To almost treat somebody as if they're... Well, God loves me more because I'm more enlightened on this one. And then you've got the other one. The other temptation is if you are somebody who's got a sensitive conscience, the danger is that you will start to condemn other people or judge other people. You'll view them as a danger to holiness. Oh dear, if we let them into our church, we'll all be impure. We're going to get sort of, they're contagious with their unholiness. And we'll judge them. And we'll start to say, well, I get it, I'm more pure, I'm more accepted, God must love me more. You see what we can do with our opinions on disputable matters. We can turn people into nothing or the devil himself. We can say you're a joke or you're a danger. So let me give you an example. I've told some of you some of this at one point. I went to a pastor's conference a few years ago, and it was a a pastor's conference where, generally speaking, more of them wore suits than didn't. Fine wearing suits, nothing wrong with wearing suits, brilliant. But they were more traditional. Um, Most of them uh, read an older version of the Bible with these and thous in it, the authorised version. Most of them uh, used big, long, scary words when they preached. And here was me rocking up in my trackies, kicking back, and I'm reading... Most of them, the books they chose to read about the Christian faith were from about the 1750s, which, interestingly, I like. Um, But I was sort of quoting books that were written in sort of... Well, not even the 1950s, but sort of the previous year. And I was getting those looks, you know, the eyebrow going up. And and at one mealtime, we sat down, and I got harangued by three of them. And it it was all to do with what version of the Bible you choose to read. And I started talking about the way in which we, we think about how we communicate the gospel faith and we want to try and be engaging with our faith and meet people where they're at. And you could just see the pressure cooker valves going up in their heads. 
at one point there was this one pastor, he was equally as young, so he'd got lots to prove. He was getting more and more agitated and more and more hot under the car, just asking him questions. And he said, I used to be like you and then I found this. Because he'd got his stack of rules and little background ideas, and he basically was condemning me. You're a danger to the church. I feel soiled having to sit at the same table as you. He didn't obviously say that, but that was the impression I got. And I walked away. How did I walk away? Tell me how I walked away. Not fuming. Snuck. He'll learn. Did I go away thinking, oh, I need to consider his opinion. Maybe I have something to learn. No. I'm like, get you, mate. Your church is doomed. (laughs) Do you get the problem? We love to try and either look smug or we love to judge and go at people. But in all of this, who doesn't look big? God. We reduce God and his power and his grace to the size of our squabbles over things that just aren't really that important. Do you know sometimes, I haven't told you this before, but um, I sometimes get phone calls. Uh, but I get phone calls about you. Seriously. Several a year, I get somebody on the end of the phone who is ranting about one of you lot. Sometimes it's an anonymous call. I would like to tell you about... I'm not going to say, because it's it's been several of you different times. You're all right, who is it? I'm not going to tell you. I'd like to tell you about... Oh, well, thank you for, for ringing and you're being so concerned about this person. Who is it I'm speaking to? Did you know that they... <laughs> Sometimes it's because the person who's ringing me just wants to vent about a person and what they've done to them. But most often, do you know what it's about? Most often it's about how two Christians are or aren't getting on. It's a third person who is being upset and offended by what those two Christians are saying about each other, doing to each other what's going on in work or what's going on with the neighbours or something like that. Put our phone number's on the board out there. I have to put up with the crank calls about you lot. But sooner or later, in almost every one of these conversations, people say, and they're not a believer usually, I've never been rung up by somebody who's a believer. What they say is, that's not very Christian, is it? Now I'm not undermining the fact that we have genuine disagreements between ourselves at one point or another, or people around us. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. The way we are towards each other undermines the gospel. God's name is dragged through the mud when we drag each other through the mud. People who who aren't believers don't see God as great, mighty, wonderful, gracious, forgiving and accepting. They see him as a petty deity who makes nasty little people. You see the problem here. Do you see the problem in the book of Romans where the whole book of Romans is about how God with his wonderful gospel saviour can fix all the brokenness the brokenness between us and God he can bring people like you and me into relationship with him and it's not separate, it's the same thing in the same moment 
bring people like us who would war, fight, break apart from each other and bring us together? So this is the reason why poor, poor Kay, you had to read that, those sentences that were sort of higgledy-piggledy and hard to pick your way through because this is actually really important. If we can't figure out how to deal with our differences, our frustrations, our disagreements, then the whole gospel is all into question, isn't it? So here are the three ways, very quickly and much brief, more briefly, as to how Paul says we should go about dealing with this what is it you're supposed to do? Number one, you deal with your problems and your frustrations differently because you accept like the Lord does. Let me read verse 3 and 4 to you. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Answer. How do we deal with things differently? Easy. Accept him. But stop. You're thinking of something different to what I'm saying here, okay? You need to, when you say, oh, I'll accept him, what do we basically mean? We mean, I'll tolerate him, he's different, I'll tolerate her, okay? I don't have to like it, but I'll put up with it because Jesus says so, and secretly go on carrying, holding a grudge. Now imagine if God treated us like that. That would be horrendous. Oh, that Kaylee, says God the Father. She never gets her act together, she always dresses shabbily. What kind of disciple is she? Oh, but I'm God, so I suppose I better accept her. I'll tolerate her, but I don't have to like it. Imagine if God treated us like that. Imagine if he did. Would we have any security? Would we be experiencing real self-giving love? Can you be relieved? Because God doesn't look at you and think like that. I might do, but God doesn't. God doesn't. He treats us and he knows what we're like and even when we are against him and disagree with him, he is gracious to us. Now that word accept comes up there in verse 1, in verse 4 and at the end of the section in 15 verse 7 the word accept is very close to the idea of warm welcome. Accept isn't tolerate, accept is receive open-handedly, even move towards. So this accept here, it means a warm hug rather than a begrudging handshake. Do you get that? God warm hugs us. He doesn't, he's not begrudging like, oh, I suppose I'll accept them even though they don't. No, he's like, I will move towards them. It's not begrudging. It's to receive as precious. Even if it's not convenient. It's an act of loving acceptance to those you are likely to say to well, I wouldn't really choose them, but they'll have to do. It's to draw in. It's sorry, to draw somebody in. It's to adjust your life, to open your arms, and to welcome people. It is to move towards them, even if they're not choice. And they certainly aren't your choice. Do you realise that's how God welcomes you? That's how God welcomes you. That's what He did for us. When we were dead wrong, according to the Bible, trying to stand on our own petty backgrounds or our own silly little rules of how we can make ourselves acceptable, 
when we were busy looking down on other people, trying to say, I'll get in on my own, he said, no, you can't. He said, instead of me looking down on you, or instead of me judging you, I will come and find a way for you to be welcomed. I will do that. I will be looked down on, and I will experience judgment myself. And he came, and he went to the cross. He adjusted his life to do us good, to accept us. And it's now in him we stand, isn't it? You see, you are not accepted before God on any of your background assumptions or any of those things, whether what version of the Bible it is, or whether you hold your hands up or put them in your pocket when you sing, or whether you speak in tongues or whether you don't speak in tongues, or whether you decide to be somebody who's teetotal or somebody who only drinks a little bit, or whether you eat certain kinds of meat or not eat certain kinds of meat. You're not accepted on those things. The reason you are accepted and made to stand is because he rolled up his sleeves so he could put nails through his arms so that he could pay the price for our wrongs so that we can stand. For all our pettiness, all our making a joke of somebody or yelling at them they're a danger, all of that, he carried the weight of that for us so that we can stand. He didn't judge us by our standards, but he was judged by a greater standard so that we could be accepted by the greatest God. And so, that person you're looking down on, or that person who you say is a joke, or that person that you're judging, can I tell you, you've done worse to Jesus. And yet he's made you to stand. He can make you stand. So can we quit the quarrelling? Can we quit the backbiting, the the grudges? Can we stop begrudgingly tolerating one another? What will we do? We will do what Jesus did to us, which was in love, welcome, accept, move towards, draw in, even if it's at the risk of being misunderstood, even at the risk of being underappreciated, even at the risk that we might even be hurt more. We will move. You notice, it's not for them to change. Paul doesn't look at them and say, you fix it. He's there saying, look, the first place, the most important thing for the well-being of your heart so you don't become bitter and twisted is that you be like Jesus and move towards people you wouldn't move towards, choose, uh, choose, towards, choose to move towards. You got that? <laughs> Accept like the Lord. Secondly, live for the Lord. Now, I hope you spot this. The problem of finger-pointing, and I tell you this quite often, is when you point one finger out there, there are three coming back at you. And that's, again, where Paul points us. Look at this in verses 5 through to 9. I think we're going to miss the third point just because of time. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers uh, every day alike. Notice that word considers. It means that there's a bit of thought gone into it. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, i.e. they've thought about it. What is the choices that I'm making for my life? And this is how we decide um, what our choices should be. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who thanks, uh, sorry, he who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Do you get the word that keeps coming back up? That is at the centre of everything? It is the word 
Lord. He's at the centre. So the question that Paul says is, you know how you are busy pointing the finger over there? Why don't you take that energy that you're using at going at them and use it to ask yourselves a few questions, which is, are you making all of your choices in life with God at the centre to honour him? You're laughing over at there saying, oh, that's so when God centres. And you're laughing over there saying, oh, he's impure and unholy. Why don't you take that energy and use it to say, am I submitting all my life to God? Am I trusting him in all things? You see, sometimes the Lord will take us into conflict so that we will use that opportunity to take a jolly good look in the mirror. Sometimes it takes grief for us to get a long, hard look at ourselves. That's true, isn't it? Whenever you go into any kind of conflict, frustration, quarrel, difficulty, puncture, I've said this to you before, nobody comes out smelling of roses, because whenever you go into that, you learn things about what you're really like. Now, if you're not a believer, you'll find it very difficult to be honest with yourself. But if you are somebody who's met the grace of God in Jesus Christ, because he makes you stand, and it's not about what you've done, you have a freedom to be honest with yourself. You can take a good, long, hard look at yourself. The difficulty is, is we tend to go on autopilot in so much of life, don't we? I like what I like, and that must be what God wants. I know how I want to use my time and my energy and my relationships. And we don't think critically. We don't think about how our choices affect other people. We don't think about how our choices affect the honour of God. We just go off on one. And here Paul's saying, look, use this difficulty as an opportunity for you to reflect and say, who's at the centre of your life? In fact, you'll never really know if Jesus is your Lord until he asks you to do something you don't want to do. There are many people who say, I love the idea of following Jesus, but when push comes to shove, when that issue, whatever it is for you, and it's different for all of us, when you know there is something that he says, this is what it looks like to love me and follow me, and you say, yeah, but I want that. It's at that point that you know whether or not Jesus is really your Lord and Saviour. I've got this quote here. I don't often do quotes. I'll do this quote and then I'll just say a few more sentences and finish because I want you to get this. But I want you to tune into this because I think this is immensely helpful. It's from a, 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 an author who I encourage a lot of you to, to read. Um, he's a fellow with a big brain, but that's not important. It's just helpful, this is. Uh, by a, guy called, a guy called Don Carson. He says this. To confess Jesus as Lord is to recognise who he is. But this can never be a mere creedal or confessional formula. The essence of all sin in the scripture is to think of myself as Lord or to make something in the created universe, something we want, Lord. The heart of all idolatry is to worship of that which is not God. I must have that. Even if God said, I don't want it. Uh, I shouldn't have it. All of the individual sins that horrify or titillate us, from genocide to secret lust, from drug pushing to greed, from murder to bitterness, are nothing more than facets of the fundamental rebellion. That is why merely religious people can be the biggest sinners of all. They can make an idol of their own smug goodness, their own religion, their own rules, their own self-righteousness, and never really worship the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. 
They may confess him as Lord, but they don't live with him as Lord. What Christ achieved on the cross was nothing less than our pardon, our release, our cleansing, our freedom. But the entailment is a renewed life in which we are orientated towards God. We confess him as Lord. So when you're in the middle of a difference, and when you're in the middle of a frustrating time, or when you're tempted to say, their ideas are a joke, or that's very unholy, what you need to do is go, whoa, stop. Have I considered all my ways? Uh, Perhaps the reason we don't do that more often is because it's frightening to take a look inside, isn't it? Or is it? Because when you take a look inside, you are brought face to face with the fact that you can never stand on your own. Your only hope of standing before a living, holy and mighty God is his grace and his mercy. And according to this, he lavishes it upon us greatly. Verse 9, you can see it there. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. It's going to have to be in his hands. So I think what I'm going to do is stop there. I think what we need to... This is something we need to pray into. If you're not in the middle of a disagreement over something or other, you will be one of these days. If you're not, sometimes it's because we're too far away from people and don't want to get that close. But as difficulties come, we're going to deal with it differently. We're going to deal with it in a way that shows I'm standing on the gospel... I can move towards people, accept welcome, even if I don't don't agree with them. And I can do it because Jesus is the Lord of my life and he's straightening me out and perhaps he'll straighten them out too. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand and sing in Christ alone I stand. In Christ alone my hope is found. We're going to do just two verses and then we're going to move to the table uh, and the table service. We'll think about that in just a minute. And then we'll sing the last two verses after all. I'd love to take questions on this but that will come after next week uh, when we've done the second part and you can ask a whole stack of questions about that when we've done Just two verses. Let's stand and sing together.